Over the last couple years, there's been one story that's been dominating sort of the Canadian headlines, and that's the fate of the two Michaels held by China. What's this all about? For those who are on a different planet who, or who aren't Canadian, a couple of years ago, in retaliation for Canada's decision to, to arrest Meng Wanzhou, who was the chief financial officer of Huawei at the behest of the Americans, the Chinese retaliated and took two Canadian citizens, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, accused them of being spies and held them in, in horrendous conditions for a three-year period. And they were only released after Canada eventually released Meng Wanzhou. A lot of was unknown about this case, a, a lot of speculation, a lot of rumor. But luckily, we have a brand new book that just came out called The Two Michaels. It is written by Carleton professor Fenn Oster-Hampson and Canadian press journalist Mike Blanchfield. It's a fascinating high-paced book about what happened uh, to the two Michaels and what it means for Canada-U.S.-China relations. And I'm pleased as punch to have uh, one of the authors, Mike Blanchfield, here to talk about us. So, Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Phil. Easy questions first, Mike. Uh, what led you and Fenn to write the book in the first place? Um, well, I've been covering this event as a journalist since day one, since December 1st, uh, 2018, when Meng was arrested at Vancouver Airport uh, as foreign affairs writer at the Canadian Press, still am. And it was obviously a huge deal. And then, you know, day, you know 10 days, nine days later, the two Michaels um, became public figures as they were picked up and arrested. Uh, and I covered every machination of this from there on there on in with many other journalists. Um, uh, and Fenn and I talked about it in the summer of 2020 after uh, Vina Najibola, the, um, the the wife of Michael Kovrig, went public. Uh, right, she, right. She did, a, she did a big uh, CBC interview. It was quite emotional, very interesting. Um, Fenn actually asked me, you know, would you want to, do you want, we should, he basically said, we should write a book about this. I want you to write it. Let, let's write it together. And, and uh, it kind of went from there. <laughs> He's uh He's he's um, he was part of a group of people who quietly and privately tried to, you know, pen a letter to the government with some legal advice, and they got some other legal minds, and it's all outlined in our book to basically tell the you know advise the government privately. Hey, here's a, here's a way out. Here's an avenue out of this um, mm-hmm. out of this impasse, uh, and it got leaked. It went public. It kind of blew up. So it didn't really you know put the government kind of on the spot because you know who's going to take advice that's you know floated publicly on the front page of a newspaper somewhere so right uh so anyway it kind of evolved from that uh we found a publisher who was interested and was terrific ken white who's the former founding editor of the national post and done a whole bunch of other neat things and he his new publishing house was really interested in the story and wanting to tie all the threads together in one place basically uh and we didn't think the Michaels would get out anytime, you know, soon or anytime by the time we finished the book. So we thought that it might at least tie up all the loose ends, tell the narrative of how they were in this mess and leave it for people to decide, uh, maybe perhaps start a conversation about, you know, how this might end or, or who knows. But uh, as we know, it all kind of came together and ended very quickly and, you know, dramatically just a couple months ago. Just as, as the book came out, in, in other words, right? Yeah, well, we were going to press, actually. And uh yeah. And uh, they got out, so we had to write a final chapter. So, uh, <laughs> Real for quick. those of you for those of you who buy the book and get to the second last chapter, that was how it was going to end. And then and then they got out. So keep reading. <laughs> well, I I, I got to read the first paragraph, Mike, because I got to ask you about the style you guys chose. So just very quickly, the, the chapter one says an ill fated arrival. 
The Surrey Detachment of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was short-staffed on Friday, November the 30th, 2018, when Constable Winston Yep's cell phone rang. His supervisor told him to get down to the Department of Justice to swear out a provisional arrest warrant for a female traveler due to arrive in Vancouver from Hong Kong in less than 24 hours. It was midday, and Yep, a member of the RCMP's Foreign and Domestic Liaison Unit, was in the middle of, his, of only his second extradition case, but he dropped everything and headed out to begin the process of swearing out and signing the necessary affidavit. When I read that, Mike, I got to tell you, and I'm going to show my age here, I thought of Dragnet. This is the 1950s police series from the United States with uh, Jack Webb and Harry Morgan that read, you know, at, two, at, at 2.22 on Monday, the 1st of April, Constable so-and-so. I'm curious why you guys chose to to use that kind of narrative style to tell the story of the two Michaels. Because we wanted to make it accessible, Phil, to people. We didn't, I mean, Fenn is... Um an academic. He's written 16 books. They're incredible books, uh, important topics. And we, both of us decided with our publisher that we wanted to tell a story that people could identify with, that people who sort of knew, heard about these guys in the headlines, sort of knew this was going on, knew there was a problem with China. We wanted to tie it all together and we wanted to make it, uh, you know, basically write it as a piece of narrative nonfiction. And we tried really hard to do that. Um, Ken White, our publisher, um, great storyteller, you know, helped us along, you know, stretched it out or, you know, helped us with it. I mean, basically we had all the component parts. We had a, there's a lot of parts in the book that are sort of explanatory and, you know, stuff you need to learn and know about to understand the story. But we, we wanted to tell a story and to bring Canadians and readers everywhere, you know, right in, bring, bring them, you know, to the front row seat of this thing as it was unfolding and explain why it was happening, uh, you know, and make it as visual as possible. I mean, there's, um, you know, you mentioned Dragnet. That's actually kind of, that's fun. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we, want, we wanted it to read like a movie, you know, like yeah. this is what's happening. This is what's happening next, you know, scene to scene, move it along because so much happened. And we wanted to make sense of it all and put it together in a straightforward narrative. And basically the book opens where it all started, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we go. And it, and it ends with, uh, well, we all saw it end on television, but we try to explain what happened behind that as well. Well, you certainly succeeded. It, it, the, the style is riveting. Uh, I certainly really enjoyed reading the book. But I have to say, Mike, you are not old enough to remember Dragnet. You must remember it in the reruns. <laughs> everybody everybody has access to reruns, yes. But yeah, <laughs> never, never, never thought firsthand. I can't say that. <laughs> you know, one theme that comes out very, uh, I think, starkly in the book, uh, that I'm assuming this is the position that you and Fenn have adopted, you're not very charitable at all uh, in terms of Canada's relations with China, dating back to the first Trudeau, Pierre Elliott, in the 70s, through the Mulroney years, the Kratzian years, the Harper years, and now Trudeau, you know, version two. It, do you think that successive Canadian governments have really badly managed the relationship with China to the point where we've essentially been taken advantage of? Is that the kind of message you wanted to get across to the readers? Um, not necessarily, but here's here's how it all kind of came together. Um, <clears throat> there's been lots, lots of histories of China, lots of recollections, lots of academic work. Um, what that part of the book is based on is... Um, cabinet documents that I got from the Mulroney and Kretchen era eras on China that have been declassified because, you know, 20 years have gone by and that sort of access thing. to information essentially. Right. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, this stuff was just sitting in the national archives, and, you know, so it's like, let's go have a look. Let's see what this tells us that we don't already know. So what we do know is that Canada's, you know, 
we know the history. Uh, that's the timeline. But what we didn't know was um, sort of some of the discussions that went on behind the scenes. We didn't know, you know, we sort of lay out, you know, the ambitions of the Mulroney government in the 80s prior to Tiananmen Square. But yeah, we, we need to engage with this country. It's too big not to. And that's always right. been the philosophy. Right. Then you move it up to the Kretschia era. And, uh, you know, we have a very sort of detailed description of um, basically how Canada got played. You know, they wanted to have all these mechanisms like these judicial committees and this and that and whatever. And then you've got a memo written by Michael Kovrig when he was a foreign service officer watching, you know, a, a one of these sham trials of a human rights, uh, you know, advocate uh, in, in Beijing, you know, reporting on it as a diplomat, you know, writing this very dry, but you can read between the lines sort of, you know, analysis that was very sharp and very incisive about how, you know, things just aren't progressing very well here. So all along, Canada had this the whole, you know, I mean, the West, the Western world has this, had this view that, okay, we're going to somehow change China. We're going to engage with them. We're going to give them democracy. I mean, you know, it's an, China's been around a lot longer than Canada. I'll put it that way. Right. I mean, we're not going to, you know, it's, you know, it, it was just a case of showing that um, not a lot of changed over, over that time. I mean, there was no success. I mean, and if you listen to what the Chinese were saying and what they were doing, and if you listen to what, Xi Jinping was saying and doing in the, you know, as the Canadian political landscape evolved and then the Justin Trudeau government came. I mean, we, I mean, my colleagues and I, we interviewed the Chinese ambassador about, you know, what he would like to see in a Canada-China free trade agreement, you know, six years ago, five, five or six years ago. And he said, we don't really want all of this extra human rights stuff and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. We want, we just want to, tra- we just want a trade deal. We want them to do a business deal. We're not interested. You know, that stuff, all, that stuff was all out there. It got reported. And, and, and as our book shows, you know, this stuff was discussed, you know, behind closed doors. Uh, events happened that kind of showed things not kind of going the way they, you know, the, the Canadian governments, successive Canadian governments would have aspired for them to happen. Rightly or wrongly, they tried it. They, I'm not saying we're not, I'm, we're certainly not arguing they did it in bad faith or they were, you know, you know, misguided, they tried their best, but this just lays out that it just, it just really didn't work. And so where we leave it in the book is like, okay, now and this got us to the point where the two Michaels and the Meng affair has happened. And eventually, you know, well, you know, it's, that's going to end. So it sort of begs the question on what happens next. And there is a really big discussion going on around the world about how to deal with China. And it's not, let's form a committee and help their judges and lawyers learn democratic rules and principles mm-hmm. it's, it's it's that's kind of gone that's a bygone era as we describe in the book it's now let's talk about other ways where we can engage practically on you know business trade and some security issues that are really kind of thorny and also ways to cooperate climate change as well mm-hmm. so that's that's what we were trying to do there uh and just show it you know it's part of the story meanwhile behind the scenes all of this was happening and it sort of explains i think how um, this predicament might have happened. I mean, doesn't it's not it's not a foolproof explanation. I mean, these events happen for a particular reason, and you know we can't say that you know if someone had done X or Y differently, it might have turned out differently. But I think it's just in terms of the context, just shows that uh, the agenda that we had didn't match necessarily the agenda the Chinese had, which is fine. Countries have differences of opinion, and uh, we laid that out. And I'd never seen that really explained in that way before and it was from first-hand sources and you know mm-hmm. the government's own kind of memos and minutes and interesting emails and our, our 
fax faxes going back and forth if you want to get into a dragnet right. you know you know diplomatic cables written on you know with block letters and you know stuff that was sent by you know telexes or however they did it you know decades ago mm-hmm. so that's all we were trying to do is just kind of tell you know explain a bit of the context of uh of um you know how these these two particular countries tried to engage because there was a lot of high profile stuff that people saw we saw prime ministers going we saw of them course. being embedded and this was our attempt to show what was what was going on behind the scenes and it's there was a there was a very good record of it that it needed to be mined and that's what we did Well, things have changed, obviously, given the fact the two Michaels were held in abysmal conditions, as you describe in, in lurid detail in the book, uh, how they were held in prison. Of course, I think 99.999% of Canadians were outraged and angry that China could do this. And so CSIS, my former organization, just came out yet again. It's probably the 20th time in the past 20 years that CSIS has said that China is interfering in Canadian affairs, they're influencing people. I've interviewed Uyghur Canadians who have been threatened by China, same thing with Tibetans, same thing with Hong Kong expats. Where do we go now, Mike? I mean, the two Michaels are are free. We'll get back to them in a second. But given the egregious nature of this action by China, is there any status quo ante here that's even possible for the Trudeau government? I mean, is, is this all going to blow over at some point? Or is this some, I mean, the, the, the term turning point gets used too much, I think. But is this some kind of a event that has happened that makes it impossible to have a normal conversation with China right now? Uh, I think it'll change the conversation. And um, I think it'll make it more narrow and more focused on the specific interests. Like what does the United States want in a relationship with China, which will dictate a lot of um, how other countries fall into line. You know, Canada will need certain things. Uh, you know, we'll have certain trade avenues. But I think what's what we're seeing is... Um, uh, no, it's not going to go back. There won't be any sort of rose-colored glasses about let's have, you know, exchanges of our judges and, you know, let's send our judges and lawyers over to train, you know, their police and their judiciary. Like, I think that ship has sailed. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, but as you say, I mean, these, these warnings, I mean, that's not the first warning that CSIS has ever given about this. Um, as our book lays out, you know, what these cabinet documents, it's not like governments didn't know some of this stuff already anyway that they've been told mm-hmm. this. I think what's happened now is it's gotten to the point where it can't be ignored. And you're seeing the Canadian government, you know, just two days ago when they joined the the Beijing diplomatic boycott. Diplomatic boycott, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the prime minister said very clearly it's because of human rights. It's because of this and that. And, you know, it's the Uyghurs. It's the South China Sea. It's Taiwan. And no one is no one in the West is turning a blind eye from that and pretending it's not there. It's it's being talked about publicly there's no more of this quiet diplomacy that would happen you know like joe biden and xi jinping aren't going to meet and smile and shake hands for a camera (laughs) and and have a private discussion about how maybe you shouldn't be shooting missiles at taiwan you know like it's going to be it's it's, the dialogue has changed it's going to be in public now uh canada has joined that conversation i think they felt that they built up um they started out very lonely in this whole affair but they've built up they've helped the you know corral their allies together to be on their side to support them in this they got the u.s on their side to basically fix this in the end it was the americans doing that did it with a lot of canadian prodding and and work Uh, so that's what's changed and um, and i think the other thing that's changed is uh we're seeing a concerted effort by canada economically to basically find new trading partners in asia Mm -hmm. or really expand their you know their list of uh 
the list of countries they do business with and try to, as they say, diversify. It's a word that's been kicked around in trade policy for years. But I think mm-hmm. this time they're really, they really understand why they need to do that. The pandemic showed us that too, with, you know, the supply chain block. Supply chains, exactly. Yeah. Stuff we saw early on with, you know, we weren't getting the PPE, you know, you couldn't buy a, an N95 to save your life yep. if you found one in your toolkit for your, you know, your unused, uh, you know, renovation for three years ago. It was like a piece of gold you found back, you know, 18 months ago, right? Now you can buy it everywhere. We're getting it sourced, but so there you go. So, you know, Mike, this whole thing began with the arrest of Ming Wanzhou at the behest of the Americans who claimed that when she was the, you know, involved with Huawei, which her father had founded, created that they were dealing with Iran. And that, and this is a way for the Americans to put pressure on Iran, of course, sanctions and such. Canada, to the best of my knowledge, has yet to come down definitively on whether or not Huawei will be allowed a significant part of our 5G network. Do you understand? I mean, from your own personal opinion and having written the book, do you understand the hesitancy given that the other partners in the Five Eyes have categorically said, no, they won't allow Huawei? Why is Canada still dragging its feet on this one? Um, well, they were dragging their feet on this one up until two months ago because of the, um, the two Michaels. They didn't want to uh, poke China in the eye over this and have these two people pay the price and however they were being treated in prison because they that was the overriding thing. It was basically they were dragging the puck and trying to see what they could do. Meanwhile, while they were doing that, the Canadian market has figured this out. I mean, Bell and TELUS are decoupling their business arrangements from Huawei. I mean, the market is deciding in Canada right now. I mean, Huawei isn't really selling this equipment. Uh, They sold 4G equipment to these companies that could have been upgraded to 5G and applications. Uh, That's not happening. But at some point, yes, the government does have to come out and say, Yes, you know, this is what we're doing. And by the way, you know, Huawei is not a part of it. I think Huawei expect Huawei, the company, totally expects this. They're Mm -hmm. the Chinese government, on the other hand, they've said, you know, there will be consequences and you know, they're saber rattling. And, you know, we heard this just the other day from the Chinese ambassador, like you better not do this, right? Uh, so uh because it's political, but uh but now there's at least more space to do that. Uh why it's taken, you know, you know, this long, I don't know. I mean, the prime minister said um couple months ago that it was going to be a matter of weeks so here we are and but we're, and we're maybe waiting, right? maybe it'll get done next you know next friday at 4 30 in the afternoon <laughs> as we all go away for christmas who knows we'll find out well you know one would think mike that now that the two michaels have been released this would be an, an optimal time to say to Huawei, well screw you uh you know this is our form of retaliation for you taking our citizens one thing that's really curious though is that I mean, maybe we have, but I don't think we've seen, we've heard a lot from the two Michaels since they've come back from Canada t- talking about their story. They're now free. They're back in our country. And yesterday, the Minister of uh, Global Affairs, Melanie Jolie, said something about they were still on bail and hence they're not as free to speak as they would like. What the heck is this all about? On bail from whom? They're back in Canada. Does anybody really fear that if the Michaels say something while on bail from the Chinese government, if that's the case, they're going to be somehow sent back to China because they've broken their bail conditions. Can you walk us through this? Yeah, I can. Just yeah, it's a kind of. I'll break it down in two parts. I mean, when the when the two Michaels came home in like September twenty fourth, twenty fifth, immediately after the Chinese state owned media reported, and we lay this out in the book that uh, that they'd been. They said they'd been released for medical reasons and would uh and would have to strictly abide by basically uh the decision of the bail that was given so basically 
you know, the Chinese state-run media said, uh, which was, you know, a story obviously planted by the government, you know, was another way to put out a press release, frankly, uh, to say this is what happened, this is our side of the story. Uh, Canada has privately discounted this, people very closely connected to the whole affair that we talked to about the book said, you know, no, you know, just kind of shrugged it off. Um, and um, so from the Chinese point of view, it was part of, a, I think, the all sort of the behind the scenes, the wheeling and dealing to finally get them out when the when the Americans dropped the charges against Meng. Part of it was, I think, OK, we're releasing you guys on bail and for medical reasons and you better watch out. Otherwise, you know, we're going to revoke your bail. But I mean, in, in practice, they're getting on a plane. They're leaving the country. I can't imagine either one of them is ever going to set foot you know, in the region anytime soon, uh, which is unfortunate for someone like Michael Spavor, who invested so much of his career. Exactly. Building, and that was the outline in the book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is, you know, I feel I can feel the effect of that one. You know, anyone, any, any of us can, you know, you've built a business and you can't go back to it. He lost all his possessions as well as I'm sure Kovrig did as well, but Spavor was living there anyway. Um, so uh, so there's that aspect. Of, so that, that's kind of a known thing um, in terms of, you know, the minister's characterization of this. Well, you know what? Apparently she she's talked to them. She's met them. Uh, we can't get into the minds of what they're thinking. And uh, and the way we tried to do it in the book is we interviewed Robert Fowler, who is a former Canadian yes. diplomat. Mm-hmm. He um, him and Louis Gay, another diplomat, they were taken prisoner by Al Qaeda on a sort of a mission to not to Niger uh, a couple decades ago. Yep. They spent 130 days in a desert dungeon you know face to face with al-qaeda until they were finally released um and fowler's written his own book about his ordeal with louis gay and we asked fowler we went and interviewed him about this you know we sat in his backyard during the pandemic you know six feet apart and talked to him and and we said what's it going to be like for these guys when they get out and he said well you know there's going to be a bit of decompression uh you know and he had some, you know, he gave us, he relayed his own experience, which was quite humorous. And it's in the book, you know, so he's, you know, some young shrink, as he describes, military shrink comes in and talks to him for 38 seconds and says, you're fine, go home. You know, <laughs> what's up with that? You know? And he said, he said, the first thing he did is he took a long holiday with his family. He needed to decompress. He needed to reconnect. And he said, and this was after 130 days. I mean, mm-hmm. these two guys have, you know, they were going on, they were coming close to three years. Right. You know, so, <laughs> you know, if it was me, I wouldn't be talking to me, the reporter, right now either. I wouldn't be holding press conferences. I would be trying to reconnect with my life, figure out what I missed, uh, figure out what I'm going to do next. And you know what? They'll talk to us I, when they want to. But you know, they're they're now living in a free country, and they get to decide that. So that's exactly. up to them. You know, and uh, I mean, I can't wait to hear what they have to say. I can't wait to read their books if they write them. I think you know, I'll be the first one lining up to buy them. Uh, but. Uh, so in terms of, you know, are they on bail from China? Are they worried about being, I mean, who knows? The minister did kind of float that out there a bit. We're going to have to find out as journalists, we're going to have to dig a little more on that to find out what she meant. But, uh, and then maybe one day the Michaels will tell us themselves. You make a good point. And I think that, you know, it is up to them, given the ordeal they went through to, as you say, to choose the timing if and, if and when they ever do want to tell their story to Canadians, I think they got a lot of support from from Canadians from coast to coast to coast while they're being held. But this is their lives and they have to reconnect. And, you know, Mike, if this has been a fascinating book that you and Fenn wrote. I, I highly recommend uh, to any Canadian who wants to learn more about this case, which, as I said, captured our attention for the better part of three years. There's some hard hitting parts in it, I think, um, when it comes to descriptions of uh, Canadian 
I would say, waffling a little bit on how we should treat China. Whether is it human rights dominated? Is it economic trade dominated? But uh, but thanks to you and Fen, we know a lot more about the situation, and uh, I can't think of a better stocking stuffer than uh, the two Michaels as Christmas comes up this year. So thanks for, for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Phil, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your interest. That was my conversation with half of the duo that wrote the two Michaels, the story of, of Michael Koving and Michael Spavor, who were, who were held by the Chinese for three years in retaliation for Canada's holding of the CFO of Huawei. What did you think of the situation? More importantly, what do you think about Canada's relations with China and where we should go next? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content and want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatrisk.com, hit the subscribe button. You get free daily digest of all the podcasts and blogs, as well as a link to my new book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present, available on the website or on Amazon Kindle. Love to hear your feedback. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.